Well, I uh, don't know if you have been following the news recently, but there have been a uh, several vicious ransomware attacks across the globe. Um, ransomware, this is this uh, virus, right, in, in a computer it's spread through the network. Uh, this this uh, became pretty personal to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, about a week ago, uh, my brother uh, was texting, my oldest brother who works for a large banking firm out California was texting with us, and uh, he said, uh, this is, I think, Monday, he said, I didn't have to work today uh, because all of our network files, and this would be like BB&T, you know, uh, the, a bank that size, uh, having all of their files stolen. And so we were asking him about this, and he's like, yeah, they, they put some uh, encryption on all of our data, and they are holding our data for ransom. And so we don't have anything to do until, you know, until my... Uh, bosses uh, see if we can we can figure out how to get it back without paying this big ransom. Well, it was like the next day, and I'm sitting at my desk, and uh, our IT, our head, our head of IT at Southeastern, I get this email uh, from him that says that you know to a campus-wide email that says uh, if you are connected to a computer or if you're connected to the network, uh, disconnect immediately. And this is rather strange, uh, you know, getting this from our director of IT. And, and I'm thinking, oh, this is a hoax, you know, that we need to connect, disconnect or something. And so I have my secretary call, and the, the, all of the lines were busy, jammed into him, because everybody was doing the same thing that we were. And indeed, our, all of our data was compromised uh, because of this maliciousware. So here, here a company in Ukraine is trying to, uh, to poison our data and put a special code on it uh, so that we cannot use it. And what happens, I, I, I looked at a few of these things. I wondered if this was going on around the world, so I looked a few of these things up. Ransomware is this type of malicious software, it's also called malware, that's designed to deny access to a computer system or data until a ransom is paid. Ransomware typically spreads through phishing, those phishing emails, uh, or by unknowingly visiting an infected website. It can be devastating to an individual or organization. It attacks a computer's files and infiltrates the entire system and ruins every, actually locks every byte of data. Ransomware encrypts your data so you cannot have access to it. Uh, just yesterday, while I was continuing to think about you know, the sermon, I, I looked again on some news, and this was yesterday's news right here. According to a German security researcher, ransomware known as German Wiper is currently being distributed via malicious email spam campaigns in Germany. The entire country of Germany is under attack from this ransomware. Uh, these emails claim to be job applications from a person named Lena Kretschmer, uh, CV is attached, attaches a zip file, so on and so forth. Then the, the file is booby-trapped and will install the ransomware. When users run the file, the ransomware, ransomware will infect every bit of data, rewrite the contents of various local fires, append a new extension, encrypts all targeting, it just goes on and on. And you have to have a key to unlock this data. Well, you might be wondering, what, you know, what, are, you, what, are, you, what are you talking about? How, what does this have to do with the sermon. Well, by analogy, this analogy with ransomware, I want to look at Paul's discussion in the book of Romans. 
All right? And he begins with this reality in our lives that can be understood by analogy, very similar, I think, to ransomware. It's, it's kind of funny that this came about right here as I'm thinking about Romans 8. And it's basically the story of what Bible calls sin. And this will not, you know, you know, this will not surprise many of you, but this idea of sin, or we could say disobedience to God, or we could say corruption, or we could say some sort of perversion of God's way. All right, so sin. Now, I've got a monumental task before me, all right, because I'm going to cover two-thirds of the book of Romans, all right, which, which is uh, somewhat laughable. My kids are already taken over under on uh, how much time I'll take today. And I just want to point out the clock is not working, so just forget the clock. Uh, I've, got, I've got it up here, so it'll, it, would, uh, it will all be all right. But anyway, I'm going to cover the first seven and a half chapters very briefly until we get to chapter 8, verse 18. All right, now, if you know the story of the Garden of Eden, Eden you know that Adam and Eve sinned against God, against one command in the midst of this kind of perfect environment that's described there in Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, and their disobedience led to the corruption of their bodies. All right? It corrupted their very DNA. All right? Now, it, it didn't only corrupt their DNA. It also somehow, and we, you know, philosophers are still talking about this, it, it corrupted kind of their spirit or their soul, if you will. So there's these at least two parts. Uh, anybody who's a, a theist, that is anybody who believes in any kind of God or anything like that, is at least two parts, right? You've got your, your body, you've also got some sort of soul or spirit. Of course, if you're an atheist, then you would just say you, the only thing that is there is material. We'll, we have to save that for another time. However, uh, because of what Adam and Eve did, every aspect, every piece of material in their body and somehow their soul, which is not body, right, was corrupt. Kind of like this malware, this ransomware. When they sinned, they, this disobedience and corruption crept into every, every little quirk, we could say, of their bodies. Plunged entire race of humanity into corruption. You know, we know the rest of the story. Their son, Cain, immediately goes out and kills his brother, you know, and then, and then they had another one, and Cain, Cain's son, and then he, he's killing multiple people. I mean, it just goes from bad to worse until we get to the flood, which is basically God saying, look, you are so corrupt, I'm going to destroy everybody except for one person in his family so that we can kind of start this thing again. It did not, did not go very well. Now, Romans 1 through 3 shows us that biblically and experientially, everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 1 actually goes back to kind of Genesis 1 through 3 and speaks about it from that aspect. Genesis, uh, Romans 2 goes to the non-Jew, that is the Gentile, and speaks about uh, sin from that aspect. Romans 3 then goes to the Jew, Right, and speaks about it from that aspect. Now, speaking of Gentile and Jew, we, we kind of just very briefly need to realize when Paul's writing the book of Romans, this will actually help us if we understand this, when he's writing the book of Romans, right, you've got basically two races, if you will. You've got the Jew, and you've got everybody else. All right? 
Paul's writing from a Jewish context, right? He was a Jew, right? He was a champion Jew, actually, he says in his other writings. But he's actually writing polemically, that is, in an argument, against a kind of Jewish audience or understanding, at least, of, of salvation or of God's plan and purpose, okay? So we have to understand that as well, and we'll come back to that. But when he gets to Romans 3 and he says, look, it doesn't matter if you're Jew, it doesn't matter if you're Gentile, you are all condemned, you are all under con- condemnation. And the reason is because of this ransomware, right? This malicious kind of attack on our DNA called sin, right? Which leads to death. So Jew and Gentile are all in the same, all in the same boat, so to speak. We are all condemned before a holy God. Right? Very bad news. Very bad news. Right? Because Paul is assuming that you all know that there's only one God, and that is the God of Israel, also called Yahweh, or just God, or the Lord. And all people, 100%, me, you, you know, the chancellor of Israel right now, and Moses, and Abraham, and Paul himself, everybody's condemned. Very bad news. So then he, then he asks this question in Romans 3.1. Again, it's kind of an important question for us to recognize it, for sure, if you want to uh, understand what he's doing in the book. Uh, he says, well, what advantage does the Jew have then? I mean, what advantage is there to be a Jew if, if everybody's condemned? And so he's now kind of addressing that, except the answer is still not a, you know, the Jew doesn't have any advantage from a salvation point of view over Gentiles. Anyway, Romans 3, Romans 1 through 3, uh, sin. So his audience, that is a Jew, Jewish audience, had a particular way that they were dealing with this issue of sin, right? So the Jews had a particular way that they were dealing with sin. It was from their historical perspective, right? I mean, it was just like you and I would probably deal with things, right, from our historical perspective, but also from their, from their Bible, the Old Testament, right? And here's how they were dealing with sin. They were attempting, everybody with me? They were attempting to obey the legal codes of the Old Testament. In other words, they were attempting to be good. They were attempting to be religious. That's what they did kind of the entire Old Testament. They were trying to do kind of religious things to overcome the ransomware that we call sin and death. Right? And so when Paul's like, no, 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 that's not it, they were angry. When Jesus said, no, 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 that's not it. That's not good enough. They were so angry that they killed him. The Jewish perspective says that, or said that, still says that, obeying the law, obeying legal codes, obeying rules, commands, statutes, that this was the way to prevent the further spread of disease, sin, death. That was the, their key, if you will, their, their ransomware, their encryption key obedience to the law. Now, there are lots of reasons why it doesn't work from an Old Testament perspective, not to mention New Testament perspective. We're not going to go into that today other than continue working through Romans. So, we see in Romans 1 through 3 that our inability to obey the commandments is actually what condemns us. Now, let me just, again, pause here just for a moment to make sure we kind of realize the full extent of this. This, of course, shouldn't surprise us Right, and I've often think about, um, you know, how far we are, just personally, 
uh, from obeying the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, this, this kind of very central document, right, that our, supposedly our, our legal code is built on, not to mention Israel's legal code, and I think lots of modern nations are kind of built on this idea of the Ten Commandments. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but have you ever thought about the one that always gets me the, the fastest? You know, all nine of them get me, but the one that gets me the fastest is the tenth one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Have you ever tried to not covet? I mean, seriously, have you ever thought about not coveting? Or coveting? Or how often we covet? I might have mentioned this in previous sermons because this always gets me. I mean, our entire marketing system, if you turn on a TV or if you listen to the radio or even if you listen to you know, Spotify or Pandora, whatever, our entire system, we pay people millions of dollars to show us things that will make us want more. Right? More and more and more that our neighbor owns that we don't own. So, I mean, if you just try to keep this one commandment for like 10 minutes, you'll fail. I remember telling this to one uh, friend of mine. This was years ago. And uh, I, was, I was talking about this commandment, the fact that we can't obey it. We were talking about God. And, and uh, he said, Tracy, he said, how, that's impossible. That can't be, that can't be, that can't be it. Because how, how could we ever obey that? I said, exactly. That's the point. But that's the kind of standard that God has for his people. Well, who can obey that? That's just one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, that didn't even get to the heart of the matter because we will see that the heart of the matter is not the commandments, but what comes out of our own inside, right? Jealousy, greed, envy, lust, anger, this experience that we have, which we're going to get into uh, later here. We're all in this state of sin. We've all been ransomware if you will. Well, again, because of how God had put his hand on the Jewish people in the second millennium B.C., they thought they were different, right? They thought they were kind of a, a special race because they had been saved by God out of Egypt, and they were trying to keep the law and so on and so forth. But again, Paul shows that the Bible actually shows that they couldn't. So they're condemned just like the non-Jew. Now, Romans 4. Romans 4. Uh, the, actually, Paul shows that the Old Testament actually says that uh, even Abraham, before the law was even given, was saved by faith. So he, again, he's just trying to make this argument that, no, 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 the advantage of the Jew is not one of a special way of salvation because of who they are. No, they also have to have faith. Romans 5 says that just as sin came in through one man, Adam, this is, I think, what, uh, what Landon was saying, or at least one of our songs was saying, so, so uh, just like it came in through Adam, it spread to all people. Now that, uh, now that happened now through one man's death on a cross, Jesus Christ, so now life can spread to all men through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Again, this is what we sing cheerfully about because we know that Christ paid the penalty for our sin. God declared him guilty in exchange for his death. Then his people, that is you and me and whoever has faith in Christ, actually get to be declared righteous. Now, Romans 6 goes on with the, the good news, especially for the non-Jew, but also for the Jew. This is also how they're saved. Not only can one person be declared righteous by God through Jesus Christ, that, but that because of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, 
the pow- and the power of the resurrection, resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, now, listen to me, now you, if you are in Christ, you can overcome sin. This is the beautiful thing, right? Uh, it's not just that we're declared righteous, but we actually experientially, as a Christian, can overcome sin if we uh, walk in the Spirit. Again, this in some way, all right, and we're leading to my problem. I haven't, I haven't forgotten where I'm at. All right, haven't forgotten where I'm at. We're leading to the problem. Let me just go ahead and get a drink of coffee. We'll have it in my hand. We're leading the prob- problem, or the answer that Romans 8 gets to. All right, but part of the encryption key here that will release us from the malware is Jesus and the Spirit. If you have Jesus in the Spirit, then you don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. And that's good news, is it? I've lost you, haven't I? I mean, imagine being released from sin. And Romans 6 tells us that down in our spirit, we have been released from sin. We can now overcome sin. So you remember... Genesis 1 through 3, we've been plunged into sin, both our DNA, which is the material part of our being, and our soul, spirit, all right, depending on whether a duality or, you know, a tripart state, right? We've now been released in our spirit because we, we don't have to be slaves to sin. Paul's actually saying that if you are not in Christ, you are a slave to sin. So again, that's the beautiful thing about being a Christian, right? If you're in Christ, you don't have to be a slave to sin. And we're going to talk about sin here in a moment, so I won't go into it anymore. Now, that leads us to Romans 7. We're very close. We're very close. Now, if it's true that we have, in some sense, been released from sin, you should, if you are tracking with me, you should be asking a question. (laughs) Very good. Why do I still sin? Kelly says, right? Why do we still sin? I mean, this has haunted me, and this should be haunting you. Again, as a Christian, you should be haunted. Why do I still sin? Paul's going to give you the answer. Why isn't our experience in life to overcome sin? Now, you may have heard the saying. I mean, it was a popular saying about 30 years ago. I remember at one, uh, you know, on the way to church, we would be driving down this country road. These one people believed so strongly in this, they put it a, literally across their front porch. Here's, here's the saying. I, it seems a little bit odd to me. But Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. They literally put that on their house. Another one followed a few months later. Please be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. Right, so these, these, these kind of sayings, they reflect this idea that this kind of reality that we all feel that, okay, yeah, we're Christians, but sometimes, I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're worse than, than others. We're worse than people who aren't Christians. Right? We, we think we're freed from sin, and yet, or we think Jesus paid the penalty, or we think we got a free ticket to heaven, and, and, and then we just walk through life you know, like a hellion. So, why isn't our experience in life to overcome sin? I just want to pause here for a moment and talk about our experience of sin. Sin sin is ever-present. 
Um, for those of you who know our own situation, you know, my father-in-law recently experienced death. Right? Now, now not, he didn't do anything necessarily to deserve sin, but in part because his body was getting older and experienced the effects of the corruption that we all are experiencing or will experience, um, he couldn't move fast enough and he made a mistake and he, he, uh, he faced death. He died a couple weeks ago. Beth uh, heard uh, this past week from one of her close friends um, whose husband um, is in the last minutes of a fight with cancer. Right? The effects of sin, death, corruption. Something is wrong with our DNA. It's corrupt. It wears out. It malfunctions. I know another person who has an ever-present, constant struggle with depression. They've got a great company. They've got a great spouse. They've got great stuff. He's depressed. Can't. He's a Christian. Claims faith in Christ. Talks deep theology. Cannot get released. He's on medication. Cannot get released from depression. Now, the effects of sin, say with me, the effects of sin are not just disease and death and stuff. The effects of sin is sin, right? Jealousy. You know, the way Paul talks about jealousy, and the Bible talks about jealousy, jealousy is like, I don't know, it's worse than drunkenness. And yet, which one of us doesn't experience jealousy? I experienced it this last week when one of my colleagues was praised by another professor. Something in my heart was like, and I wanted to hurt my colleague. I mean, it's like, this is crazy. This is demonic or something. And yet, here it was in me. I'm 51 years old, halfway successful. I'm still comparing myself to other people. What is the deal? How about a bad mouth of gossip, crude language, yelling? I yelled at one of my kids this past week in frustration. I mean, what, what is the deal here? Don't you get tired of dealing with sin? Right? I mean, you get tired of dealing with sin. Now, just in the off chance, in the off chance that you don't see your own sin, I'm just challenging you, ask the Lord to show it to you, right? Because I'll bet he will, and uh, you'll be a better Christian for it. it. Brings great humility. Well, we could go on. Lust, hunger for power, money, fame, you know, whatever, whatever it is, Paul's literally saying in chapter 7, and we come back to Romans, right? Romans 6, you're freed from sin. Romans 7, why do I sin, Paul's saying? Why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why do I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do, Paul says in Romans 7. So again, he's asking this question, if, if we've been freed from sin, why do we still experience sin? Here's the answer. And now we're getting to our text for the day. Let me just check time here. See if I don't want my kids to win too much money there. All right. We're in good shape. This is going to be short now. 
Here it is. Here's the answer. The answer of why we still experience sin is the body. The body has not been redeemed yet or has not been made new yet. We still are experiencing the corruption of creation. And Paul's going to say in our our passage today that creation groans and our bodies groan. That's, That's his answer. This part hasn't been redeemed yet. Right? And so we, we, we're still waiting. And this is, this is where we get to our sermon. Uh, chapter 8, 1 through 17 says that the body of sin causes us to sin, and we must go through this suffering. We must go through this suffering to get to glory. Actually, suffering is a sign that we are not there yet. Now, if you uh, actually saw the sermon title, I don't think it came through the email chain, but it is printed in the uh, bulletin. I gave uh, Pastor Jim two sermon titles, right? One was Pinch Me, right? Because, you know, usually we say pinch me, you know, to see if something's good and so on and so forth. The other one was Rock Hard Abs, right? Because I think we all want Rock Hard Abs in heaven, right? And the body has not been redeemed yet. Well, you notice that uh, Pastor Jim did not put the Rock Hard Abs as a sermon title. He used uh, Pinch Me. Well, we have to go through suffering to get to glory. Our suffering, and when folks, remind, uh, let me remind you, when I talk about our suffering, really I'm talking about our experience of sin. I mean, death, disease, these things are horrible, and they are the result of sin. But Paul's real answer here at this point is coming out of Romans 7, which is, which is the struggle with sin. And that's, why, that's what he's blaming on the body. Now, I have three very brief points. Uh, Jason, I uh, was worried that he was already going to steal uh, one of my points this morning, but that helped me to emphasize it maybe. Uh, the first uh, point is we should be expecting to suffer right now. So if you, if you think life should be happy, a bowl of cherries, let me just disabuse you of that. There's going to be suffering. I'm sorry. It's coming. It's coming to me and it's coming to you if it's not already there. Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, uh, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says the suffering of the present time. In the Greek, it's the now time. He says the suffering of the now time. It just makes, you know, makes a little sense. You know, I mean, right now, the, this suffering that we're experiencing isn't worth comparing to what's going to come. We're going to get to what is coming later on. We should be expecting to suffer sin, disease, and death. And in a way, this is a sign that something else is coming. This is not it. And again, from Paul, who's a believer in Yahweh, right, God, right, he's saying that this, the, the fact that you're suffering is a sign that there's more to come. Because God would not do this for the, the end-all, be-all. God is actually working out his plan. It literally began to be put in place when God initiated with Israel. I mean, in some sense, he initiated with uh, Adam and Eve, but when he broke into Israel's history, you know, uh, 2,000 years, no, 4,000 years ago or so, 
Uh, that was the first part of his plan. He didn't do it only for Israel's sake, but the world's sake, that so eventually he could bring Jesus Christ into the world. That was 2,000 years ago. Then the Holy Spirit, you know, that's why we celebrate Pentecost. The, the Spirit was poured out. And we're now at that point where the Spirit is being poured out, and we've still got some yet to go, all right? But Paul says right now, we got sin. 22, he says the same thing. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He also uses this word groaning, right? In verse 22 and verse 23, I mean, even the Spirit groans for us in verse 26. Creation groans, we groan, the Spirit groans for us. It's a time of groaning. It's a time of groaning. So Paul admits here that everything up until now has been suffering. Now, we, we might notice, though, as we go back here to verse 19, look at verse 19. This actually leads to our second point. First point, sorry, experience, just get ready to experience suffering. And again, this is actually a good thing because it actually prepares us for the future. And it also causes us to put our hope in the future, all right? So we'll come into that, suffering. Second point, verse 19 begins to kind of uh, hint at this. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, now check this out. This idea of eager longing, I'm not sure exactly what your particular version says. I think some of them said eager anticipation. Another one said this eager longing, eagerly awaiting, I think was another one. Three times in this passage, just in these 12 or 14 verses, the idea of eager longing is expressed here. In verse 19, eager longing, creation waits with eager longing. 23, not only creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await, same word in the Greek, we, we with eager longing, we await for adoptions as sons. Verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait eagerly, same word, for it, with patience. So the second point of application here this morning from Romans 8 is, look, are you awaiting eagerly? It's not just waiting. You know, it's awaiting eagerly. Are you awaiting eagerly? I think we could wait a couple of different ways. Um, but I think eagerly brings a little bit different perspective to it. Again, I think it tells us where our hope should be. Are we awaiting eagerly this revelation and we'll talk about the revelation momentarily i used to have a philosophy professor at southeastern uh, that he he would say the biggest problem today in christian philosophy uh, that is you know philosophers christian philosophers who are trying to kind of answer uh, philosophical issues in contemporary society right the biggest problem right now i don't and this, this was 10 or 12 years ago is the idea of evil and suffering that's, that's the place that we as Christians are having trouble the most in answering, you know, the atheist claim that there is no God. And, and you've, I'm sure you've heard of this. Um, you know, you know uh, if God is unable to prevent evil, then he's not all-powerful. If God is not willing to prevent evil, then he's not all-good. 
if God is both willing and able to prevent evil, then why does evil exist, right? There's this kind of syllogism here that's pretty popular here. And it's, a, you know, again, my, my philosophy, my Christian philosophy professor was saying, hey, this is a bit of a problem for us. Why hasn't God dealt with evil and suffering? But the professor also said the answer is in that he has not dealt with it yet. And this is, falls right in line with what Paul's saying here. Right now, suffering. We should await eagerly the revelation that is to coming. Are you awaiting eagerly? Or are you distracting yourself? Are you numbing the pain with sin? Or with something else? Relationships, work, Well, the third point then is, do we know what we are awaiting for? And this is, again, comes back to the idea of the body. The next step in God's plan is the redemption of the body. That's the rock hard, rock hard abs part, right? Creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the adoption of the children of God, the redemption of the body. This is in verse 23, but before we do that, let's go to verse 20. Creation was subjected to futility. This is, this is God doing this, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it, that's God, in hope that, this is verse 21, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We're, we're awaiting being set free. Being set free from the corruption of the body, the suffering, the death, the disease that we face right now. One of the words that is repeated twice here in chapter 8 is this idea of adoption as sons. Now this is actually interesting because in chapter 9, uh, this is what the Jewish people had from the Old Testament. They actually were possessors of the adoption, right? But now Paul is saying it's offered to anybody in Christ Jesus. So this waiting for the adoption of the children of God, the glory of the children of God, is now offered to anybody. That's what we're waiting for. That is the redemption of our body. And again, it's kind of set in contrast to the Jewish perspective of Paul's day. Verse 23, this is, this is the verse right here. All right, if you're looking for the verse in this part of Romans uh, 8, here it is right here, verse 23. Not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, Paul is saying, look, what I said in Romans 7 is, you know, we have the Spirit, but we still are, we're still messing with this creation and it has not been redeemed yet. And that's what we wait eagerly for. Paul goes on to say, in this hope we were saved. And when I first read this a couple weeks ago, I'm like, wait, what? In what hope? That's, that's, not why, that's not why I think I was saved. I wasn't saved for the redemption of the body. I was saved for heaven, which I, you know, at one point, not, not recently, but in the past, I thought, okay, we're, you know, it's, uh, streets of gold, right? Going to be floating around like Casper. Right? Or, you know, we're going to be able to, I don't know, we're going to be in some cloudy place, right? 
and, and uh, I don't know if it's going to smell like vanilla or, you know, French, you know, maple syrup or what, but I'm going to be up there kind of floating. No. Redemption of the body. Our body is going to be redeemed. Paul says, in this hope we were saved. Friends, if you are not, if you don't, if, if it's not in hope of the redemption of the body that you're saved, then again, you're not in lockstep with Paul. Paul says, in this hope. I'm like, wait, wait, I've been missing this because this isn't the hope I was, I was saved for. I was, again, saved for some other faraway place or something, but no, Paul says, in this hope we are saved, that redemption of the body, the, the kind of the revealing of who the children of God are, his sons and daughters, whose bodies will be no more corruption. The ransomware will have been de-encrypted. And we will walk with him, with one another. No more comparison, no more jealousy, no more lust, no more abuse, no more selfishness, no more death. Well, again, Paul continues in verses 24 and 25. He says, in, hope, in this hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Why does one hope for what he sees? Of course not, right? Hope is this thing that we don't see. And if we hope for what we do not see, we, with perseverance, with patience, we wait eagerly for it. The revealing of the children of God, the redemption of our bodies, we're not yet what we will someday be, Paul says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. This corruption, same word that Paul uses here, this corruption, right, will be gone in the twinkling of an eye. And we're going to have like whole bodies. Again, rock hard abs. And I always say to uh, my boys uh, in heaven, I'm going to beat you in a race every time. <laughs> Many of you have heard uh, the story of uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. This was popular when we were, when I was a kid anyway. Uh, she was an athletic teenager. Uh, she broke her neck in a diving accident when she was 17. Her father was an Olympic wrestler. She did horseback riding, sports, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And uh, she, her spinal cord was severed. She became paralyzed from the shoulders down. And uh, when this first happened for, for decades, she you know, basically had nothing under her neck. Now she's got shoulder movement. She's now a two-time cancer survivor. She says, uh, she says in a, a blog post I read, she said, recently I was sitting, I was at my desk writing to Tommy, a 17-year-old boy who just broke his neck body surfing off the Jersey Shore. He's now a quadriplegic. He will live the rest of his life in a wheelchair without use of his hands or legs. All right, now just, again, for you men out there, just think about Tommy, 17 years old, surfing. Now he's basically laying in a bed. Think about all that he misses. You women out there, think about Johnny at 17. Nothing from the neck down. I mean, that's pretty hard to enjoy the good things in life. He will live the rest of his life in a wheelchair without use of his hands or legs, she writes. When it comes to life-altering injuries, quadriplegia is, a, is catastrophic. She continues here. Halfway through my letter describing several hurdles Tommy should expect in rehab, I stopped. I felt utterly overwhelmed. Again, this is uh, 50 years after her accident. 
thinking of all that lies ahead for him. I've been there, she writes. And even though half a century has passed, I can still taste the anguish. And she then moves on to talk about suffering. However, if I were to nail down suffering's main purpose, again, just think Romans 7 here, I'd say it's the textbook, suffering, for her quadriplegia, for us maybe just sin or the death of a loved one. It's the textbook that teaches me who I really am because I'm not the paragon of virtue I'd like to think I am. Now, if you know anything about Johnny, I mean, this is crazy coming from her, right? She's written over 40 books. She's painted, I don't know how many paintings, with a pen in her teeth. It's crazy, right, that she's, she's writing this, right? But she says, she's, I'm not the paragon of virtue I'd like to think I am. Suffering keeps knocking me off my pedestal of pride. Sometimes when my scoliosis becomes extremely painful, I'll murmur and drop hints to God that he's piling on too much. I mean, I get this way when my coffee gets cold. Later, when the pain dissipates, I'll make excuses. Lord, she says, that's not like me. I'm not like that at all. But she says, but it is like me. It's exactly like me. Suffering is the textbook that teaches us who we really are. She says in another place, and this is good, this is where I'm winding down here, I can't wait for the day, redemption of the body, folks, I can't wait for the day when I'm given my brand new glorified body. I'm going to stand up, stretch, dance, kick, do aerobics, comb my own hair, blow my own nose. And what is so poignant is that I'll finally be able to wipe my own tears, but I won't need to because the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that God will personally wipe away our tears. There'll be no more need to cry. How ironic that finally on the day when I have my hands so I can blow my own nose and wipe my own tears, I won't have to. I look forward to that day, she says. She cannot wait to dance in heaven. How about you? Are you focused on the redemption of the body that is yet to come? Or are you worried more about something here? If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Two things, very quickly, as we wait. First of all, the Spirit, in 8, 26, and 27, is meeting with God, the Father, right now. Again, the, this, this word intercession that's used here, at least in the New American Standard, this word intercession is used three times in the passage, twice the Spirit. And this idea of intercession means to meet with someone on the behalf of. The Spirit, right now, if you are in Christ, is meeting on your behalf with God. Now, what's crazy is at the end of the passage, Jesus himself is meeting with God on your behalf. Verse 34. So as you wait and as you suffer stuff down here, be encouraged because the second and third persons of the Trinity are actually meeting with God on our behalf. The other thing is the second thing to know as you await eagerly with patience Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The same thing happens here. Uh, this, there's a separate in verse 35 before that long list, and there is a separate in verse uh, 39 before that long list. 
And both times, it's nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us if you have the encryption key. If you have the encryption key. If you don't have the encryption key, there's no ransom. There's no ransom that you can pay enough if you don't have the encryption key. But thankfully, the encryption key is free. And here it is, verses 31 to 34. I want everybody to lay their eyes on this, if you can. I'll conclude after this. Chapter 8 of Romans, verses 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is he to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is now at the right hand of God? Who is indeed meeting with God for us? Let's pray.